listening to Draw Near with Fred and Kara, and today for this episode, we have a guest with us. He is a very dear friend of both of ours, a wonderful yeah. priest, and actually Aggie's godfather, so I'm excited <laughs> to get to chat with you. Um, so we have Father Bame, Father Patrick Bame here with us. Good to see you guys. You said a wonderful father. priest. Who's that? Who else is going to be on with us? <laughs> yeah. No, this is great. No, it's it's always good to be with you guys. Um, I love your, your show, and it, I, you guys yeah. are such good friends, and yeah, it was uh, a great honor to be Aggie's godfather, and um yeah. be able to pray for we her. had to convince you father well you did because yeah no it's true because you know this is actually a good point this is actually something we might like just take a little two second detour good, yeah. on and talk about yeah. being a godparent is a really serious responsibility yeah i think a lot of people have the idea that like well you know you show up you say a few words at the ceremony and then you're done and maybe you send a christmas card or something like that but no like being a godparent it really entails being a role model for that child in the faith mm-hmm. and someone that that child can talk to, um, someone that, uh, you know, that child um, hopefully will learn to emulate uh, in in the life of faith and holiness and virtue. So that means that you have to be an integral part of that person's life. Now, full disclosure, mm-hmm. I have other godchildren that I have failed in that. where you know I have not been as present in their lives as I should be and um, for various reasons Uh, on my part and and you know just the losing contact with the families and whatnot Um, and so when when you and BJ Kara when you and BJ asked me to be Aggie's godfather it was something like you know I really need to pray about this and really discern is this something that the Lord is inviting me to because I you know, I, if I were to say yes, it's something like, okay, I want to have a, a, an integral role in her life and not just, yeah. you know, see her here and there. And and so you did. You had to convince me. And and, and really the Lord had mm-hmm. to convince me. But fortunately he did. And, and he was very confirming in prayer that this was something he wanted me to do. And so yeah. it's, uh, it's a great I honor for her and for me. I appreciate how discerning that you were with that yeah. because that was kind of our take as well we're like you know what father is going to be in our lives and I feel like you've been a part of all of the big moments leading up to Aggie being born like you and I worked together before BJ and I even met and then you were there when we got engaged and you were at our wedding like as a can celebrant so we're just like he's kind of just been there like he's going to be there that's awesome yeah so we were really grateful that we convinced you to say Uh, well thank you Jesus (laughs) yeah and thank you BJ and Kara your experience, I think that's pretty common, though. I know a lot of people that have said, I have so many godchildren, I, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, they don't even know the number because it it, it can be just a, a name on a certificate right. somewhere, you know. So I think it's beautiful that you do want to be involved mm-hmm. in that way, which is why our listeners can't tell. But you, being on this video call, you can tell. We put Aggie right there where you could see. I did. See I her. noticed that was the, one of the first things that I noticed when uh, when you guys logged on to the Zoom call. Absolutely. She's yeah. sleeping. You can see her. <laughs> well, I hopefully uh, I see you guys have headphones on, so hopefully we don't wake her. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's um, it's a joy to be able to bring her uh, just in prayer before our Lord in the Eucharist every day. And oh, I love that to to think about her and you know we don't. We don't live right next to each other. We live about two hours away. Uh, we're kind of on the, the, you know, I'm on the far southern edge of the diocese. You guys are on the far western edge. And so we don't really get to see each other a whole heck of a lot. But yeah. um, but hopefully it, it's a relationship that we can continue sustaining and growing as she develops into a disciple of our Lord. Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of already dove into a question that might not have um, been one that we had brought to you by listeners, but that's today's episode. Um, We have another one that we did with you. It was Ask a Priest. Mm -hmm. And so you're just, you know, you're our priest when we have Ask a Priest. (laughs) I guess it's going to be you. God love you. I mean, I... you know, you're really kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel, but um, no, but stop. I actually appreciate you're very. I feel like you're very just like to the point, and like you're not gonna shy away from difficult topics. And no, I think that's, no. And I mean, I, I don't know any other way to be. It's the only. It, it's yeah. the only way to be. Right. Yeah. yeah, and we got a question that came in from a listener wanting wanting us to take it up, and we're like, 
Father Pat has the, yeah. the best answer for that. The so. answer I would have given was right. stolen from you. Yeah. So, that's great. Where did I? <laughs> well, why don't would I hear like... the question first? And yeah, then I can like ask, where did you hear that? Where did you get my answer from? But okay, yeah, that's great. Yeah, so we had one of our listeners actually email us this question. And it's one that I think a lot of people have. And there's a lot of different avenues for the answer. Um, but it's why can't women be priests? Yeah. And so she basically wanted to know how to explain this to her daughter. Like when she's teaching her kids, like you can be anything. Yep. How do I, how do I explain to her? No, you can't, you can't be a priest. That's a great question. Um, yeah, probably four or five years ago, I preached a homily on this and, uh, I, I don't know, maybe you guys heard my homily. I'm not really sure. Yep. That's what I was going to steal. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, praise okay. God. Yeah. I preached that in, uh, in Fort Dodge one day and um, it, it happened. I, I think if my, if memory serves me correctly, the second reading for that day was the letter to the Hebrews, which is really the, the great New Testament theological discourse on the priesthood. And of course, the, the author to the letter of the Hebrews, um, traditionally uh, believed to be St. Paul. I personally believe it's St. Paul. Um, I know there is some modern debate about that, but that's another topic for another day. Regardless, the letter to the Hebrews is the inspired word of God, and the author is really speaking about uh, the, the Old Testament priesthood, the priesthood of the Old Covenant, but bringing it into the context of the New Covenant priesthood. And he even says in there, wherever there is a change of law, there must necessarily be a change of priesthood. And so when Christ uh, at the Last Supper institutes the Eucharist, and he says, this is the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant. Well, another word for covenant is testament, uh, which is, it means law. So the old law, the new law, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the old covenant, the new covenant. It's three different ways of saying essentially the same thing. And so when our Lord instituted that great sacrament of the Eucharist, he simultaneously instituted the priesthood. The church to this day recognizes Holy Thursday as the date of the institution of the priesthood. It's why uh, the Mass of that day is really not uh, the, the evening Mass of the Lord's Supper. The, the daily Mass of Holy Thursday is actually the Chrism Mass, uh, which, which commemorates the institution of the priesthood in the morning. Um, in practice, nobody celebrates that on Holy Thursday. They all, including in our own diocese, we all transfer it to some other day in Holy Week just because of the, the practical realities of the, the busyness that is Holy Thursday and the Triduum. But the point remains that the Eucharist and the priesthood are intricately linked together. So this is all by way of preface to get to the answer. How, why, why is it that the church teaches that only men can become priests, meaning biological males? And, and unfortunately, in our world today, we have to actually define that. Uh, a man is an adult, biological male. So, um, why is that? Well, I would note a, a few reasons. Um, the first is just the, the obvious that Jesus only chose men to serve as the first apostles. They, in turn, only chose men to serve as their successors. And so our Lord certainly gives the example that he is establishing uh, ordained ministry um, among members of the male sex. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I would say is Jesus also invited St. Matthew to serve as one of the apostles. Matthew, the, the author of one of the original, one of the four gospels. Matthew was a tax collector, as is clear from the writings of the scriptures. Tax collectors were oftentimes viewed as insignificant people in society. They were very much looked down upon. Uh, to be a tax collector was essentially to be a thief because they would often be guilty of extortion and, and, and theft uh, over taxation. But nonetheless, Jesus saw fit to call St. Matthew to serve as an apostle. But the real main reason in why the church teaches that only a man can become a priest it really has to do with the nature of who god is okay it has to do with the nature of who jesus is and who god is but before we get to that i want to throw in one little it's sort of we might even say a bracketed reason it kind of bridges the gap jesus christ is god 
I mean, that is the central claim of Christianity. God cannot sin, period. He cannot sin. And so, sexism is a sin. We recognize that. That if we discriminate against someone because that person is female or because that person is male and for no other reason, we have a word for that. It's called sexism. And that is sinful. Now, we know that because Jesus is God, he could not sin. Sexism is a sin. Therefore, we can say that he did not choose women to be priests out of any sexist, misogynistic motive. It couldn't have been. If it were, then the whole claim of Christianity falls. That Jesus was only doing the, you know, doing this out of some you know, misguided understanding of masculinity and femininity. Well, somebody might object and say, well, but hold on. In that culture, women were often disregarded and, and seen as second-class citizens, and Jesus was just obeying the cultural norms of his day. It wasn't really sexism. He was just going along with what was, what was common and popular. But that just doesn't hold up. I mean, Jesus did all sorts of things that were contrary to the cultural norm of the day. I mean, just off the top of my head, Jesus ate dinner with prostitutes. He forgave sins. He made he himself with the woman at the well. Right, exactly. By himself. He, the yeah. woman at the right. He encountered the woman at the well in John chapter four. He even, you know, he even made himself God. He claimed to be God, which is ultimately what got him crucified. Right. I mean, his very first homily went over so well and was so in accord with what the culture, you know, perceived to be true that they tried to throw him off the top of the temple. Mm -hmm. And so the reality is, is that Jesus didn't do anything, anything based off cultural norms. That was the furthest thing from any concern of his mind. Nonetheless, he only chose men to serve as the first priest. It wasn't because of cultural norms and it couldn't have been because of the sin of sexism, because then all of Christianity falls. So put it all together. Why did Jesus only choose men? I've kind of answered why he didn't choose, why, why, why we can kind of justify and, and argue to say, well, he didn't choose women for these reasons. But here's what I would say. We learn in St. John's first letter that God is love. God is love. But we also know that love is synonymous with gift. Just about any time in the scriptures, anytime you see the word love, you can almost verbatim take the word out, insert the word gift, and the sentence means exactly the same thing. God is love, therefore God is gift. And in the male-female relationship, particularly in the male-female relationship of marriage, it is always biologically the man who gives and the woman who receives. It's stamped into the, into the very image of your body to steal a line from Christopher West. God wanted to act in accord with our nature as male and female created in his image and likeness. And so it, it actually is necessary that the second person of the Trinity in the incarnation would assume a human nature in the male sex. Why? Because in the male-female relationship, the man is always the giver of the gift, the woman is always the receiver, biologically speaking. Mm -hmm. And so, Christ, in imitating the bridegroom, Christ the bridegroom of the church, I shouldn't say imitating, he is the bridegroom of the church. He had to be incarnate as a male. He could not be incarnate as a female, not because females, not because women are in any way inferior, or that men are in any way superior, but to be an accurate sign of who God is in his relationship to us as his people. Because in the relationship between men and women, the man is always the giver, the woman is always the receiver. In our relationship as people to God, he who is infinitely above us, he is always the giver, we are always the receiver. There's a, there's a common saying out there, you know, God's gift to me is my talent. My gift to God is what I do with it. Well, in a certain sense, yeah, I mean, if that gets you to work hard and go to practice in the morning, great. <laughs> but that's wrong. We can't give God a gift. There is nothing that we can give him that he doesn't already have. He has everything. 
I mean, the Catechism says he's perfectly blessed in his own blessed life. He can, we cannot give him anything. He is always the giver of the gift. And to drive that point home, he had to become incarnate as a man. And thus, all every priest who stands in the person of Christ and says those sacred words, this is my body given up for you, for me to be able to image Christ in my life, I must be able to image him in my body. And thus, it's actually, a lot of people may not know this, it is actually an impediment to orders. You cannot be ordained as a priest if you have been castrated or if you suffer from impotence. Now, a bishop can dispense from that. It, it, it can be dispensed from, like other impediments. But it's so intricately tied into what the priesthood is as a generative faculty that as a priest, I give life. As a priest, I'm a father. Now, I'm not a father in the same way that you are, Fred, but I am a father, right, in right. giving new life. And in order to be a father, I have to be a man. I have to be a male. In order to be a mother, you have to be female. Unfortunately, this is so lost in the world today. So I, I'm, this is a long answer, but I'm trying to draw it all together. You look at our world that is so confused when it comes to gender identity and gender dysphoria. We would say that the body matters. Being male, being female matters. It matters in the relationship of marriage. It matters in how you interact with the world. And it matters in whether you can be a mother or a father. I mean, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, we wouldn't have thought we had to explain that only a woman can be a mother and only a man can be a father. Unfortunately, that's where we're at in, the, in today's world, that you have to be a man to be a father. You have to be a woman to be a mother. And likewise, by extension, because a priest is a father, you have to be a man to be a priest because God is always the giver of the gift. It's a long answer, but I hope that that kind of hits at some of the at some of what you're what you're looking for yeah and often the church is defined with female pronouns like the bride or mm -hmm. you know mother yeah, church, she, mother church. Yeah, 100%. So because because we as the people in the church are the receivers of that gift 100 mm -hmm. and i think it was i don't know who it was i want to say saint athanasius but i could be wrong who said that everything you can say about the church in general you can say about the blessed virgin mary in specificity and everything you can say about her specifically, you can say about the church in in right. generality. Well, I think that sometimes is what, what gets people to with the question, because why can't women be priests insinuates that it's like holding women back from something in the church. But there's a very beautiful role in the church, like in the church herself, you know, with referencing her as female, but especially in the Blessed Mother and just the beauty of femininity in the church. In some ways, woman has the highest place in the church in a way. Right. I mean, I mean you see that in creation. At, yeah, especially in creation. Yeah. And you look at uh, the Blessed Mother, of course. Even when you were saying the Jesus kind of thumbing his nose at the conventions of his time, I think in a way you see that with the resurrection. You know, he tells Mary Magdalene first. He appears to her mm -hmm. first. She goes and says he's risen, you know. So in a way, she's the first apostle to the apostles. Right. 100%. You know? I mean, the witness in, in that day, the, the witness, the testimony of a woman would not have carried any weight. Right. And yet that's who Jesus to went to first. Yep. Well, and Pope Francis, for his part, he, uh, he essentially raised St. Mary Magdalene to that level. I, he... He made her memorial on July 22nd every year. He raised it to the level of a feast a couple of years mm -hmm. ago, which is typically only reserved for the apostles. Well, up until a couple of years ago, July 22nd was the memorial of St. Mary Magdalene, and Pope Francis raised it and said, no, this is a feast. Why? Because she's an apostle to the apostles, just like you said, mm -hmm. just like you said there, yeah. Fred. I noticed in your answer there was a lot of bodily language, a lot of reference to the body and a lot of emphasis on physical uh, physical things yeah. as it relates to our body. And so this kind of brings up another question that, that we've gotten a lot completely different track, but still related to the body. That's great. Uh, what is the deal with cre cremation as Catholics? Yeah, that's great. Um, it, it is related. You know, it, 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 we are corporeal beings. The way I would answer this is, first of all, to kind of debunk something that I often hear when people die. 
So grandma dies or grandpa dies or, you know, God forbid a child die. And a lot of us will say, well, God got another angel today, right? I have another guardian angel in heaven. No, you don't. No, he didn't. All due respect. I mean, I'm not trying to belittle someone's grief, but we don't die and become angels. We are human beings. You mean It's a Wonderful Life isn't true? No, it's not. (laughs) It's exactly right. And so, I mean, it's a great story. But uh, insofar as there's any notion of people dying and becoming angels, no. We are human beings. Human beings are a composite of body and soul. We have an eternal soul that will live forever, but we also have a body. And in the resurrection, when, when Christ comes again, we will get our bodies back, either in heaven or, God forbid, in hell. As a result of that, the church really insists on great care being given to the body. So the ideal is that when someone dies, the body would be buried. It would be put in a casket, hole dug in the ground, you put the casket in the hole and you bury it. Mm-hmm. That's the ideal. Um, you can be buried at sea. Uh, that is, I, full disclosure, I would actually kind of like that someday, but unfortunately <laughs> I'm not eligible because I have never served in the, United, in the Navy. Uh, my brother, who did serve in the Navy, he is. He would actually be eligible for that if it ever came to that. Um, but that's neither here nor there. The point is that we treat the body with respect. Cremation is one of these things that the technical way the church says it is it's tolerated. It's not desired. It's not the ideal. But it is tolerated. Because ultimately, when you bury a body in a casket, it's going to turn to dust. We're just kind of speeding up the process. But with those cremains, that's the the technical term, the, the, the cremated ashes, the cremains, they should be buried. Right, so they shouldn't be kept on a mantle above the fireplace. Uh, they shouldn't be put in a locket um, and worn around your neck. They shouldn't be, you know, taken to the top of a mountain and yeah. spread across, you know, dumped in the breeze and blow away. We respect the body. Now, if somebody's done that, okay, don't stress. God can still raise up. I mean, God's still God. Mention it at your next confession. But uh, we, we try to be and want to be as respectful of the body as we possibly can, uh, which means that cremation is tolerated so long as those cremains are, in fact, buried. Now, kind of with that, um, we, we were talking about sainthood and St. Mary Magdalene. Yeah. One, of the things, one of the things in the canonization process is to exhume a body. So if you are cremated, you basically can't be a canonized saint, right? Because you couldn't... You couldn't exhume the oh, body? Oh, no. I, I mean, sometimes the body is exhumed. Not okay. always. Right. It, it, sometimes. Just it, particularly to see if the person was incorrupt. Yeah, right. Um, no, I, to the best, I mean, there could be to, that somebody knows that I'm not aware of. To the best of my knowledge, there's no formal rule that someone who's cremated cannot be canonized. Okay. Um, I mean, in reality, there are there have been saints, you know, certainly martyrs, whose bodies were so mutilated uh, in their death mm-hmm. that they couldn't be exhumed, even if even yeah. if we wanted mm-hmm. to. Um, so I, don't, I, I hope that answers it. It does. So kind of with that, this goes, this is an indirect question that uh, I got from a family member, um, not necessarily for this episode, but I think it fits. Could you donate your body to science? Yeah, I was actually going to bring that up. Absolutely. 100%. Okay. Um we should, as best we can, try to ensure respect for the body. And when the body is done being used for scientific experiments, experimentation, it should be buried, right? It shouldn't be. How can you guarantee that happens? Like if they're going to like open you up and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, if your organs are taken out, they're taken out. I mean that, and that happens, you know, you can be an organ donor. Um, It's actually, you know, it's a good thing to do. Uh, there is some question about being a heart donor. Um, to be perfectly honest, that's medical knowledge beyond my level of expertise. I wouldn't be comfortable answering. Um, but in general, being an organ donor is a very good thing. Uh, donating your body to science um, so that research can be done to try to prevent particular diseases, particularly if it's a disease that the person died from. So, for instance, uh, if someone suffers from Alzheimer's or dementia at the end of their life and 
a lot of times, you know, their brain can be can be used uh, for study of, the, of those diseases. That's a very good thing. Uh, insofar as possible, those organs should be buried because uh, they're part of the body. Um, mm-hmm. If they can't be, you know, I, I don't know enough about that research and how it's done and, and what the end state of those organs would be uh, to comment on that with any level of expertise. Okay. The principle is just respect for the body. You work that out with the, the the laboratory and just say, you know, yeah, you can use my, my spouse's body for your research. But when you're done, um, these are our, our parameters. This is what we want mm-hmm. done. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. yeah, that can be really helpful. Father, I know you're a big football guy. Oh, no, Niners, yeah. Niners fan. I don't sometimes. know if I should bring that up. But with, with CTE in the NFL, that was a big part of how they kind of learned some things there. Absolutely. Was, you know, I think of Junior Seau, for example. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, uh, you know, donating for that research, and we've learned things because of that. There's a name I haven't heard in a while. You know, yeah, God rest yeah. him. I mean, I, I just... Uh, he was, for those who may not know, and we didn't, you know, we didn't script this. We didn't talk about this at all beforehand, but Junior Seau was an outstanding linebacker for the San Diego Chargers, really one of the best to ever play his position. And tragically, uh, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 years after his career was over, it might have even been less time than that. I don't remember exactly. He took his own life. Uh, mm-hmm. Very, very tragic, and so you know, God rest his soul, and you know how the Lord judges that and judges him. Fortunately, he's the one that makes that decision. We just pray for him, so you know, God rest mm-hmm. him. So there is hope for those who die by suicide. Hundred percent, absolutely. Yeah. Amen. I think it was wasn't it Saint Catherine of Siena who said that in her journal or in her no, it was Faustina in her diary says that at the end of everyone's life, Jesus comes to them. And so they have a chance yeah. to choose him and to repent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if St. Faustina said that. I, I think just off the top of my head, St. Catherine Genoa may have said that as well. Okay. Um, I think it is in her diary twice in Faustina's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be. Um, the thing that I would caution people on, though, is we have to be careful with that because, you know, the church has this saying that we die as we live. If we live separated from Christ thinking, well... I'll just slide in at the last moment of, you know, my life. Well, there's two problems with that. One is, it's just like any other skill. You you play how you practice. If you don't practice and you just think, well, I'm going to show up for the game and I'm going to be good and I'm going to, I'm going to do great things. That doesn't work in any other field, any other walk of life. But the other thing is, let's just say that in your case, it does work. And you've lived your life separated from Christ at the very end, the very last moment, the Lord appears to you, says, this is your last chance. And you run to him and you embrace him and he forgives you and welcomes you into the kingdom of heaven. That's great. That's fantastic. But let me, let me tell you something. Let me let you in on a little secret. We have this understanding of what's called merit. In other words, we build a, a place for ourselves in heaven. Right. Think of John 14, the father, Jesus goes to the father's house to build a home for us, a prepare a place for us. It certainly it's grace that gets us into the kingdom, only grace. But insofar as we cooperate with grace, we expand our capacity to receive love and we expand our capacity to have a better experience of heaven. So I, I actually just preached on this about a month ago and I said, I don't want to live in a shack in heaven. No, don't get me wrong. A shack in heaven beats a mansion in hell any day of the week. Right. If you have to choose, choose the shack in heaven. But all things being equal, I would rather have a mansion in heaven. And the way you build that mansion in heaven is through living a life of continual unity with Christ. Yeah. yeah. Continually being uh, united to him and growing in virtue and holiness and sanctity, sustained through the, pray- the, the sacramental life of grace and prayer. Yeah. yeah. I was just listening to a, a priest talk about this. And actually one of our questions was about the four last things. So this mm. is very fitting, mm-hmm. but I was just listening to a priest talk about this. And he basically said like heaven is for all of eternity being fixed and praising God. So if you didn't do that in your, in your life, then heaven almost becomes hell for you because you're not prepared for that. You don't know how to do that. You know who actually, ironically, has one of the greatest writings on this that I have ever read anywhere? And I realize this name could be off-putting to some of your listeners. I'll explain it here in just a second. But Matt Walsh, 
about five years ago, he wrote a commentary on what heaven is. Your, your listeners can Google it. Just like Matt Walsh, um, what is heaven or something like that. It, it's not political. This particular article is not political in any way. And I read it and this is like probably the best explanation of Catholic theology about heaven that I've ever read. Uh, Matt Walsh is a Catholic. He, as far as I know, a practicing, believing Catholic and uh, not making any commentary on his political leanings, either for or against. He wrote, again, just one of the best explanations I've ever read, if your listeners are interested. That's awesome. awesome. Kind of with that, um, this is like a soapbox thing for me. Yeah, great. Kara mentions this probably on every other episode. No, okay, don't. well, that's fantastic. Let's see where we're going here. Okay, it frustrates me a lot that so many priests, and I, I am not one to pick priests. Like Francis says, you know, we receive Christ through your hands. So I'm not one to pick apart priests or to comment on them. But it really does bother me that so few preach on death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And there are so many opportunities in mm-hmm. in the readings and in mass to like tie our life and how we live our life to eternity. And I feel like it's such a, a I don't know, an injustice to parishioners to not tell them what's waiting for them. So do you have any comments on your brother priest? Like why, why do people just feel like that would hurt people's feelings that might be polarizing? Like what, what could be a reason that priests maybe don't feel comfortable with that? Yeah. You first of all, you're right. You're right in your analysis. I think, um, it's hard for me to say if you're right in your observation because okay. a crazy thing happens when you get ordained as a priest, you stop hearing other priests preach. Right. And so I might only hear another priest preach a handful of times a year mm-hmm. when I'm celebrating mass with them for whatever reason. And so is that talked about to, to a greater or lesser degree? I, I don't know. I can't really speak to that. Um, but I'll take it your word, and let's just say that it, it isn't mentioned. So why isn't it mentioned? I, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I, I think you're on to something. Um, it can be hard for people to hear that. Mm-hmm. I know for myself, one thing that I oftentimes struggle with is saying, okay, how do I present this truth in a way that doesn't cause people to despair for loved ones who have already died? Right. And that's a di- I mean, that's difficult. Because when you explain to people that um, dying in a state of unrepentant mortal sin, it's a dogma of the church that you will lose your salvation, meaning you will go to hell if you die in a state of unrepentant mortal sin. Well, obviously we don't know, right? We don't know what, you know, as you say, in that moment when our Lord comes to somebody, in that last moment before death, we don't know what happens and whether or not that person accepts the Lord, repents, whatever. But the simple fact of the matter is that there are a lot of things that the church teaches are mortal sins. And that if they're not surrendered to his mercy in confession, which is the normal means to receive forgiveness post-baptism, if they're not surrendered to him in that, then what's the state of the person's soul? Well, the church teaches that they lose their salvation. So somebody who doesn't go to Mass on Sundays and dies... Somebody who uses contraception in their marriage and dies. Somebody, you know, fill in the blank, whatever, and dies. If that person didn't repent, there's, the church would say, okay, this person lost their salvation. The good news is, that's the bad news. The good news is we don't despair of that. Right. Right? We never despair. Despair is a sin against hope. The theological virtue of hope is a sin against the Holy Spirit. And so we don't despair. We don't despair of any loved one's salvation. Now, I, I have had loved ones die who have not been faithful practicing Catholics. They, they, I mean, mm. Even faithful practicing Protestants. They didn't, you know, they had no relationship with the Lord whatsoever. Mm. I don't despair of their salvation. I, I entrust them to the Lord who loves them more than I do and who wants them in heaven even more than I do and who would rather die than spend eternity without them. So to answer your question, that's really difficult to preach on. Yeah, for sure. Which is, you know, perhaps one reason why more of my brother priests don't preach on this. I don't know. I, you're right. It shows up in the readings quite frequently. Our Lord had quite a few things to say about our eternal destiny. Quite a few. 
certainly the whole month of November is dedicated to the dead. And so the whole month of November is a wonderful opportunity to reflect on and meditate on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Two certainties, two possibilities, as one of my professors put it. So I don't know if that answers it, but that's what I got. I think one thing that came to mind when you were talking about that is like, if anyone who you have lost ever pops into your head, pray for them. Because I feel like that's something that like, God is outside of time. So like I have somebody who uh, in my life who passed away 12 years ago and I went to high school with them and they, they died in a drunk driving accident and I don't know the state of their soul, but he comes into my mind all the time. And so I'll just like pray for him. And then over the, the year of mercy did a plenary indulgence in the year of St. Joseph for him. Um, because if, if God is outside of time, like, can I apply those graces to him in that moment of his death and like maybe one day meet him in heaven. So if somebody pops into your mind that you have lost or you like, you know, like you said, father, don't despair over them, just offer them up in prayer and hope that that grace was applied to them in their life. And so that they could choose God. That's such a beautiful thing too, father. I know Padre Pio said that very Mm -hmm. same thing that, you know, those prayers are outside of time. If you lost a loved one, continue to pray for, Mm -hmm. you know, God's mercy for their soul and there's no, we don't have to despair. I think we mentioned suicide earlier, and I just wanted to, I didn't want to leave it dangling. I wanted to come back to it. Oh, yeah. Sorry. But, um, you know, that that's the thing. Like, the church is teaching on suicide. Like, you don't know the state of the person's mind and health and soul at the, you know, at the time. And you often hear the sort of false teaching that we think everybody goes to hell or they're damned. And there is still hope there that we may see our loved ones again. And the hope is the same for them as it is, is for us. And that's God's grace and mercy. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, to go back, what prompted that was talking about Junior Seau. Well, it came out after Junior Seau's suicide that he had suffered pretty severe, severe brain injuries. Um, from, from football? Exactly, from his time playing football in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when he played in kind of the the 90s, the early 2000s, the technology wasn't as good as it is today. And they, they, the NFL was not as concerned about players suffering concussions. I mean, now if there's even the possibility that you suffered a concussion, they have to take you out of the game, you go through a whole protocol, a doctor checks you and makes sure that you are good to go back and they have to clear you. And then you have this whole week or two of passing through concussion protocol. When Junior Sale played, they didn't have any of that. And so when he died and they did an autopsy on his brain, they just found severe, severe brain damage and trauma. So how culpable is he for that act? In all honesty, in all reality, probably not very. Right. Yeah. And that that tends to be a lot of times mental health. Exactly. And and all those things are factors. So um, so if that's you and you're you're hurting, you still put your faith, hope and trust in God and and pray and, and don't despair. And reach out, you know, reach out and, and and get help. There's a, there's a viral video that I just saw within the last two weeks or so, um, of a man, I don't know how old, probably in his forties or so I would, I would estimate. Uh, and I believe he was pulled over by a Virginia highway patrolman. And this man is, you can see through the highway patrolman's camera on his, on his uniform, this man is like just beside himself. He's sobbing. He's on the phone with the VA suicide hotline and this patrolman helps him and they get him the help he needs. And and that man's alive today. Thank God. uh, Because, you know, he reached out for help to the VA hotline and that highway patrolman who just was out doing his job was able to come upon him and, and get him the help that he needed. And so, so many people, you know, especially, especially post COVID, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are suffering pretty severe mental anguish from everything that that entailed. All of, I mean, just the whole last two and a half years, there's people that are suffering a lot of interior woundedness that yeah. um, that there is help. There's help and there's hope. So don't be afraid to reach out. Yeah, I think as a society, we're all, we're all a little overwhelmed. But I think, you know, we all have our own crosses we carry in ordinary circumstances. So, Kara, why don't we put the the suicide line helpline in the show notes. Yeah. 
Um, switching gears a little bit because I do want to be able to ask one of the questions that we got on our Facebook page. Great. Um, so this one might be a little bit easier for you to answer. It's a liturgical question. Um, she wanted to know why is mass the only time we pray the doxology at the end of the Lord's prayer? Uh, that's a, that's a darn good question. Um, so the, the doxology, just so people are aware, for the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forever. It's very common in Protestant circles. Uh, I will typically get it um, whenever we have a funeral and you pray the Lord's Prayer. There's a, there's a little prayer that the priest prays before the doxology that is usually not prayed in Protestant circles. And whenever you have a funeral where there's a, a large number of Protestant people present, or a wedding too, what happens there too, uh, they oftentimes, just out of habit, will, will go into that, that doxology. Why do we not pray at any other time? I don't know that there's any reason why you couldn't. I mean, I don't think there's any reason why you couldn't add that, you know, as you pray the Lord's Prayer and the Rosary, for instance. Um, it's not in the, the scriptures. So that, that's something that is worth noting, that the Lord's Prayer, either in St. Matthew's version or in St. Luke's version, neither of them have uh, that doxology. So that's the first thing. Um, why is it in the liturgy? I, you know, I, I know you said this is probably an easy one. I would have to defer to somebody who is a, litur a liturgical expert. I, I would maybe defer to our diocesan liturgy guy, Father Andy Gallus, on that one. I, I truthfully don't know how that got inserted into the liturgy uh, following the Second Vatican Council. I don't know if it was part of the of the, the traditional Latin Mass. I, I, I just, this is... I know liturgy, but I'm not an expert, and I don't know the answer to that. Right. Okay, fair enough. That's yeah. all right. Um, I think we have time. We want to end with a personal question, but I think we have time for one more other Great. one. Um, so this one might relate actually to quite a few people. It's about weddings. Yeah. Um, could someone be in a wedding of a non-Catholic or in a wedding of like an outdoor wedding? Cause like you're like, you're a bridesmaid or you're a groomsman or something. Well, I'd need a little more. I, I assume the person is asking, could I in good conscience as a Catholic do this? I assume that's right. what the person is asking. Um, meaning could I as a Catholic in good conscience participate in a non-Catholic wedding? I would need more information to adequately answer that because if one what of the other two, information, what's that? <laughs> What other information? Yeah, well, if one of the two spouses is Catholic and thus is bound to be married in the church unless they get what's called a dispensation from canonical form, then no, you cannot participate in that wedding because you are participating in the simulation of a sacrament, which is right. a serious sin in itself. Um, there's a lot of people that don't know that. Right. And, and just may, I mean, in total innocence may not be aware if that's you, honestly, I would just mention it at your next confession. You know, the next time you go to confession, just mention it. Okay. If neither party is Catholic and thus not bound to observe canonical form, meaning being married in the church in front of an ordained priest or deacon, then, yeah, I don't see any problem with that. Okay. Um, but, yeah, it, it, there's... There's more information that's needed there. If one of the two is Catholic, then I, I would absolutely not participate in that wedding. Okay. What if, what if, can I be ordained online and perform, perform the ceremony myself? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. it, as soon yeah. as, you know, like, <laughs> and I say that tongue in cheek, the, the answer is, of course not. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, I went through eight years of seminary to, <laughs> to, to be able to wear this collar and there are people mm -hmm. that fill out, you know, a two minute questionnaire online and are ordained. What, what's the <laughs> issue with it in the, in the eyes of the church? Well, if you're, if you're a Catholic. Yes. Yeah. So ordination is a sacrament. It's a sacrament that's instituted by Christ that's handed on in particular ways that Christ handed on to the apostles and the apostles handed on to their successors. And through 2,000 years, through two millennia of Christian history, this sacrament has come to us and has been preserved by the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church to the, to the point where we say that the Orthodox and the Catholics have valid sacramental form, that our ordinations are valid and licit. 
And this isn't to take away from our Protestant brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, I have many friends who are Protestant ministers. I actually have an aunt who is a Presbyterian minister. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not to take away from, from the good work that they're doing and the, the, the diligent work that they're doing. But this new phenomenon of, well, I'm going to get ordained by, you know, filling out a, a little questionnaire online and having a certificate, get, you know, get emailed to me that I print off. Well, where does that come from? You know, I can trace my ordination back through Bishop Nicholas, who was ordained by, I don't know, Cardinal Stafford or whomever. And, and you go all the way back. I can trace over, you know, if we really sat down and did the work, I can trace my ordination back at least as far back as we have the records, whatever that is. Yeah, so would I be, as a Catholic, and I'm not really thinking about doing this, but if I, were, if I as a Catholic, were to do one of those ordination things with the intent of performing a wedding for, let's say, two non-Catholics, wouldn't I, in that instance, be in schism with the Church? 100%. Yes, yeah. absolutely. You, it is a formal act of separating yourself from the Church. Now, canonically, I don't know. You'd have to ask somebody that's an expert in canon right, law. Yeah, I am not an expert yeah. in liturgy or in canon law. So you'd have to ask somebody who's a canonist who could quote you the relevant canons. But is it sinful? Yes. Is it an act of separation of the church? Yes. Do you need to confess it before receiving Holy Communion? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, I would never recommend anybody do that. I think that's part of the problem with the online ordination thing is it makes it seem so easy, innocent. Oh, I'll just do this real quick. It's, you know, it might as well be a personality test that you did online. Right. And what, you know, what I was going to say when you, when you first asked, was, oh yeah, sure. I, I said it tongue in cheek. I was thinking of, um, yeah, I'll just jump online and get my top secret security clearance. I won't go through any of the background checks. I won't have the FBI look into who I am and my connections. And I'll just get a piece of paper that says I have top secret security clearance. I'll walk onto a military base, hand it to the officer and say, you know, I demand to see all of your nuclear secrets. And I would probably be marched in handcuffs off to prison. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last question. This one's just a personal one. So. it's related to your vocation. I think uh, in any vocation, there's going to be things that you love and things that are really difficult. Um, So what is the best and what's the worst part of your vocation as a priest? 100%. That's a great question. Um, Let me do the worst part first because we always, we want to end on a high note. Um, The worst part I would say is, is cynicism whether it's cynicism in the church, uh, cynicism of leadership in the church, cynicism of my brother priests, either, you know, among ourselves, they towards me, me towards them. And I don't mean that in any personal way. I just mean in general, cynicism among priests uh, who are suspicious of one another and don't like each other, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Cynicism among people who are who I'm trying to evangelize mm-hmm. they just have no interest in hearing the message of the gospel and no interest in striving to live any level of sanctity so that, I would say that's the worst part do you ever find cynicism within yourself oh yeah yeah oh, I yeah. feel like that would be hard too I mean that's I mean working in ministry sometimes it's like wow I'm I've become really cynical like I could feel like that would be a thing within priesthood too hundred percent. And I mean, full disclosure, I am on Twitter way too much. You know, I just really <laughs> am. I, I tweet about the faith. I tweet about the, the, the 49ers. I tweet about the Pittsburgh Pirates and how I am really angry at Major League Baseball right now. And um, sometimes I'll tweet about politics and all sorts of different things. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it, it really just grates on me and I have to just disconnect. Right. I have to get away from it because I see the cynical tendencies um father chad ripperger who's probably the the foremost exorcist in the at least in the united states if not the world today he had a great series that he did on form.org so not that i'm trying to push other media besides draw near but when you're not listening to (laughs) we're the only (laughs) exactly when you've caught up on all of the draw near episodes if you're looking for something else you might check out form.org and there's a there's a three part interview that Christophonic recently did with Father Ripperger, which was really good. It was really well mm-hmm. done. 
And one of the things that Father Ripperger said in there is just constant negativity is from the enemy. It's from the evil one. Yep. Yep. And so that was something I hadn't really thought about, but he, he made that pretty clear. Um, yeah. What's the best part? Mm-hmm. That's actually an easy one. Seeing people encounter Christ. Yeah. Seeing yeah. people, not to steal the name of your, of your podcast, but seeing people draw near to our Lord. Yep, absolutely. Um, usually, frequently, that happens in the sacraments, particularly confession. But it can happen in, any, in a wide variety of ways. Uh, I'm taking five high school seniors to the Focus Seat Conference in a couple of months. I'm so excited for that. Nice. That yeah. they can hopefully encounter our Lord in a, in a, in a new way that they never have. Um, we, uh, we have a retreat coming up for, um, for some of our students at the school where I work at and where I serve. It's a very, very powerful experience for them. And they encounter the Lord in a deep way. The, the difficulty, of course, is the follow-up. That they don't become the seed that, I think it was the seed that fell on the, the, the rocky path that sprang up at once but withered for lack of roots. Right. Um, that's always the difficulty. But at least in that initial blossoming, to see someone, particularly a young person, encounter the Lord for the first time in his or her life... It, that's what gets me up every day and keeps me coming back for more. That's beautiful, Father. Mm-hmm. I think that's the same with ministry as well. Like, that's the joy yeah. of ministry. And I, I would actually, you know, answer the question as a, as a lay person working in ministry care the same way Father did. The cynicism affects us the same. Right. I'm sure it's a different way, but I think that same tension yeah. of, of being negative. Like, I always tell people, when you work for the church, you have to have a strong enough faith not to lose it. And I mean not lose it in two different ways. I mean, one, literally just break down and, and you know. Lose your mind. And, yeah. yeah. And then on the other hand, lose your faith mm-hmm. because you expect more that in that environment, you expect the best. And sometimes you see that no matter where you are in the world, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. But at the same time, you see that fruit, uh, the goodness of seeing someone encounter Christ and seeing it, the fruit it bears in their life, and that's what keeps you going. 100%. Yeah. Well, thank you, Father, for your ministry, and thank you for joining us, and hopefully this episode has answered people's questions and helped them to um, grow closer and draw near to Christ, which is the joy of ministry. Thanks for all you guys do. Uh, thanks for your, your dedicated work and your service, so God bless you. Thanks, Father. Thank would you, you actually both. leave us with a blessing? I would be delighted. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who art everywhere present, and fillest all things, treasury of blessing, giver of life, come and abide within us, cleanse us of every sin, and save our souls, O good one. Lord, I ask your blessing upon Fred and Kara, upon all who listen to this podcast today and any time in the future. I ask that you would be with them, help them know of your immense love and your mercy and your grace. Give them every gift and grace and blessing that they're in need of. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Be sure to sign up for our upcoming book study at sushipe.co. Learn more at drawnear.me.